We're on to the fifth and final podcast episode on Episcopal beliefs and practices. Up next, it's all about the Trinitarian life. Thanks for joining us on the Church Next podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Church Next podcast. My name is Chris Yaw, and I am your host as we learn from gifted presenters on a variety of topics designed to help us grow in our spiritual lives. You are listening to episode number 19. It's called Walk in Love, The Trinitarian Life with Scott Gunn and Melody Shobe. Scott is an author, priest, and the head of Forward Movement Publishing House. Melody is also a priest, author, and popular speaker. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library over at churchnext.tv. You can find out more by going there. And if you'd like to support us, consider a $9 a month subscription that will give you access to all of our individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. The Holy Trinity, God the Creator, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Altogether, all separate, unified, yet divided, one being with three parts. Parts that are all one, but that also apparently talk to each other, based on Jesus' interactions with the Creator in the Gospels. If we accidentally reduce God's nature, we make a big mistake. If we accidentally start thinking of one God as three separate gods, we make a different big mistake. Scott Gunn and Melody Shobe note in their book, Walk in Love, that even clergy are not immune to this problem. Here's a quote from the book. If you wanted to pick a good Sunday to hear a heretical sermon, you'd do well to pick Holy Trinity Sunday. You see, it's pretty common for preachers to make the mistake of trying to simplify the Trinity, and in our efforts to downsize the ineffable into something we can grasp, we almost always mess it up. So what's a confused Christian to do? Well, Scott and Melody offer this advice. Quote, We are much better off leaving the Holy Trinity as a divine mystery, something that we enter into with joy and a bit of uncertainty. Without trying to boil the whole thing down to a bumper sticker, there are a few things we can say about the Holy Trinity. At its core, the Holy Trinity reveals that our God is a God of relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a beautiful, careful, and timeless dance. The Holy Spirit keeps us from making the mistake of reducing God to something comprehensible, to a God that our brains can hold. So, what's this episode about? Trying to grasp the Holy Trinity. Well, not the nature of the triune God, but the ways in which the different persons of God reveal themselves in human history, in scripture, and in our lives. In this episode, Scott and Melody talk about our interactions with God, the Creator, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And finally, they'll talk about how Episcopalians can and should engage a calling that can make us very uncomfortable, which is evangelism. From Scott and Melody's book, quote, Our understanding of creation is grounded in the idea that God is the creator. We profess in our creeds that God the Father has created all that is, and we affirm that the eternal Christ was present or active in the creation also. Indeed, the church also teaches that the Holy Spirit hovered at the moment of creation. The entire Trinity lovingly brought the universe into being and life into the world. It continues, if we are to live faithfully, according to the visions set out in scripture and echoed in our liturgy, we must see God at work in creation. We must honor the gift of creation and we must use these gifts to the good of others. 
In this first talk, Melody discusses the Trinity's involvement in creating the universe. She talks about the responsibility that God has given people in giving us stewardship over creation, and she examines our responsibility to revere the earth as God's creation and to use its resources rightly in the service of others. One of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity is belief in the Trinity, which means that we profess that God is both three and one, which means we profess that God is somehow both three and one. We proclaim God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and say that those are not three gods, but one God. When I'm talking to kids about this, I often say it's fuzzy math. Somehow we make one plus one plus one add up to one. That's a really hard thing to wrap our brains around, and most of the time it's going to defy our complete understanding. And yet, it is a mystery we proclaim. It's very important when we're exploring the mystery of the Trinity that we don't try and oversimplify it, to boil it down to a bumper sticker. Usually when we do that, we fall into heresy or bad teaching in the church. We try and separate out God into three gods, or we oversimplify God into only one God rather than three persons. The important thing here is to understand that the Trinity is a mystery to be explored and engaged, not something we can necessarily put together in our brains in a particular way. But at the same time, belief in the Trinity has serious implications for how we live and what we do in our daily lives. This stuff actually matters. And here's an example of how it matters. So we proclaim that the Trinity was present in creation, that God the Father created the world, but at that moment, the eternal word, Jesus Christ, was also present, and that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. The action of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is all present in creation. And that teaches us about how we should live in relationship to God's creation. The story of creation at the beginning of Genesis proclaims over and over and over again, it is good. God creates the heavens and the earth, the plants and the animals, and us human beings. And every time God says, it is good. So rooted in the Trinitarian life of God, at the beginning of creation, we are told that this earth and everything in it is good. And humans are given a particular role in creation that we are to tend and to keep it. That is powerful. Too often we have abused that power. We have seen the earth as something to be exploited for our use. But that's not the message we hear from the Trinitarian God present in the beginning of creation. We are told by God's echo again and again of this good earth that it is ours to care for, that we have a responsibility to care for the plants and the animals and to care for one another. When we use and abuse creation as though it is disposable, we neglect what God has called us to do and to be. One of the things, one of the fundamental things we say about our faith is that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's really hard to love our neighbors when we are using up resources that are meant to be shared. 
It's really hard to love our neighbors well when we are going each man for himself, each person for themselves, polluting our earth, damaging creation, and not giving thought to those who come after us or those who live around us. We are called as people made in the image of God, as those who profess the Trinity, to care for the earth, to take in mind what our actions do to damage the natural world or how what we use affects others. This awareness should shape our daily living, what we buy and how far we drive and what we do with the things that we have and whether or not we buy disposable things or reusable things. We can live out our profession of faith in small and big ways every single day. The Book of Common Prayer includes clear expressions about this. It includes a number of beautiful prayers for the right use of creation, prayers for the harvest and for the earth, reminders that as we pray these things, we are shaped in a knowledge that we are connected to all of creation and responsible for it, that creation is God's great gift, and we are called to tend and to keep it. Here's a quote from Scott and Melody's book, quote, By affirming Jesus' incarnation, the enfleshment of God, we are affirming Jesus Christ as fully divine, the word present at the beginning, and fully human, a helpless baby born in a remote village of ancient Palestine. God voluntarily took on human frailty, knowing our weaknesses, our joys, our sorrows, and our temptations. God even knew the sting of death. This puts to rest any idea that God is remote or distant from us. In this next talk, Scott discusses the incarnation of Jesus, what it means and its implications for our experiences in our lives. In our second section on the Trinitarian life, we'll talk about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And one essential theological idea for us to grasp is the idea of incarnation. That's a fancy theology word that comes from Latin roots, and once I tell you what it means, you'll never forget. If you've ever ordered chili con carne with meat, you know what incarnation means. It means in meat, enfleshed, that God was enfleshed in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to say Jesus is God incarnate. I think the most beautiful chapter in the entire Bible is the first chapter of John, and it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was present at the moment of creation and active in creation, but it doesn't end with that first beautiful line of John. It continues, and the way Eugene Peterson put it in his translation of the Bible, the message and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So God has dwelled with us, has moved into our neighborhood, so to speak, that God has become human in Jesus Christ, and God has known every pain, every sorrow, every joy, every temptation, has known every part of the human experience, including death, except 
that Jesus did not sin. But except for that one difference for the rest of us, Jesus has shared our human experience. A consequence of understanding the incarnation is we begin to grasp the idea that the material world is good. If the material world were bad or sinful, or if our bodies were bad or sinful, God would never have moved into our neighborhood and become human. The fact that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine shows us and proves to us that God loves our material world, loves us, loves who we are, that loves us and loves our bodies, that it's good. And this, of course, affects how we treat other people. One of our baptismal promises is to seek and serve Christ in all persons. We're meant to look for Jesus in others. And it's all persons. There's no asterisk. It's not just the people we like or the people who look like us or the people who live in a country that we like or the people who don't scare us. We're meant to seek and serve Christ in all persons. Because we know that humanity is special to God because Jesus has become human, we want to treasure other humans and treat them well. One of the ways we understand incarnation is to say, as John Chrysostom said early in our church's history, that if we can't see Jesus in the beggar at the door of the church, we won't see Jesus in the golden chalice. And the reverse is true, that our practice of receiving Jesus and seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus in the sacraments helps us see Jesus and know Jesus and experience Jesus in the world around us. That's a consequence of this idea that God has moved into our neighborhood. Thanks be to God. We know that our God loves us so much that God the Father was willing to send his son Jesus into our world to live among us, to share our human experience, to die for us, to be raised for us, to dwell in glory for us, that God loves us so much that God was willing and desired to move into our neighborhood. Thanks be to God. From Scott and Melody's book, A life empowered by the Holy Spirit is a gift, not a goal. The disciples didn't work hard to earn the Holy Spirit. It descended upon them as a gift from God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were able to do things that they did not imagine possible without God's power, preaching prophetically, sharing generously, praying constantly, and serving joyfully. So too, we are told, God sends the Holy Spirit to each of us, empowering us with spiritual gifts. In this next talk, Scott and Melody explain the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and ask us to consider the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us to do God's work in the world. In this third section on the Trinitarian life, we talk about God the Holy Spirit. One of the things we proclaim as Christians is that the story of Jesus doesn't end with his death and resurrection, but it continues beyond that. That after his resurrection, 
Jesus ministered with his disciples. But then when we come to the book of Acts, an extraordinary story begins. The disciples are gathered to keep the feast of Pentecost. And there, as Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And the Holy Spirit empowered the disciples to see that this faith that they had heard about and learned about from Jesus was for the whole world. They could understand each other and they could tell the faith in a way that the whole world could understand. The Holy Spirit is a lot of things, but it is especially God's abiding presence with us. And it's not something that's confined to the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit continues and abides in the church and in the world and in us. The promise of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit is our gift too, that the Holy Spirit is with the disciples of Jesus, not only long ago and far away, but here and today, and that the power of the Holy Spirit inspires us and gives us spiritual gifts. We hear again and again in scripture lists of these spiritual gifts. It's in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. Um, all different ways that the Holy Spirit can empower us, God's faithful people, to live and act in the world in new and different ways. Things like leadership and cheerfulness and generosity, gifts of prophecy or evangelism. There are lots of different ways that the Holy Spirit can grace us and give us ways to serve God empower us with these gifts. It's impossible to go into detail about all of those gifts right now. There are a variety of inventories you can take to try and discover your spiritual gifts, or you could talk to your priest or spiritual director. But there are a couple of key things you should know about spiritual gifts. The first is that everyone gets them, not just leaders or certain special holy people. Everyone is given spiritual gifts. These gifts are not just for us, but as scripture tells us, for the common good. We are empowered by God's Holy Spirit, not so that we can succeed, but so that we can build up the kingdom of God, so that we can serve God and God's people in our lives. And those different spiritual gifts, there are a variety of gifts, but there are none that are better or worse than others. Every gift has a place in the service of God's kingdom. If all of us were one kind of gift, then we would be missing so much that we need as a community in order to be disciples of Jesus. So you might aspire to a different gift, but there's none that are better or worse than others. It's also important to remember that spiritual gifts are a free gift from God they are yours to do with as you choose. They are intended for the building up of God's kingdom and for the common good, but they are yours. You don't do anything to earn them, and you can't do anything to get other ones that God didn't intend for you. But you can learn a little bit about your spiritual gifts. A good metaphor for this is like reading the manual of a gift you've received so that you can learn how to actually use it. When we discover what our spiritual gifts are, we listen to one another and we listen to scripture and we listen to God speaking to us in our lives about what our particular gifts are. We can then learn how to better exercise those gifts. We can grow in our spiritual gifts 
although we aren't earning new or better ones. One of the things that we must decide is how we are going to use our gifts to serve God and God's kingdom. We are entrusted with these things. They are not ours alone, but they are for the common good. So you have gifts, spiritual gifts, powers from the Holy Spirit that are given and entrusted to you to serve God's kingdom. Our book, Walk in Love, includes a process of discernment for you to listen to what God might be saying to you about your spiritual gifts, and also includes resources for how you can discover to use those gifts more fully. The important thing is to know that you have them. They are a gift, and until you open them and learn about them, you can't use them properly. A quote from Scott and Melody's book, The practice of sharing our faith is called evangelism. The word comes from the Greek, evangelion, and it means to bring good news. Some people think we shouldn't use the word evangelism or even practice it because a few Christians have employed coercive tactics, threatening or bullying people into conversion. But evangelism doesn't and shouldn't mean that, and it is time that we reclaim the word and live out its meaning of bringing good news. Evangelism is sharing good news, no more and no less. But that raises an important question. What is the good news? When we talk about the good news of God and Jesus, we might talk about our redemption, about being freed from death, our liberation from sin, or any number of aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. Another way to talk about the good news is to share what Jesus is doing in our lives. Either way, if we're going to practice evangelism to tell others the good news, then we have to know it ourselves. We have to know our story. And in this final segment, Scott and Melody discuss how to learn our own story and recognize the good news in our lives. They explain why and how to tell the good news to others. All of us who are Christians enjoy our faith because someone, somewhere, shared their faith with us. It started with the apostles who shared their faith with everyone who they met. Those people then shared their faith with others who shared their faith with others. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ spread through time and around the world until someone shared the good news of God with you. The practice of sharing our faith is called evangelism. And it comes from the Greek word which means to share good news. The truth is we have all received the good news of God in Christ, and we are commanded and called to share it. So how do we learn what this good news is? Because in order to share something, we have to have it first. There are a couple of ways we can do this, and one of them is to steep ourselves in God's word, in God's story, the Bible, so that we know the content of our faith and the story of all that God has done from the beginning of creation, through time, through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and even up until today. By reading the Bible and learning this story, we are immersed in the good news of God. Another way that we can learn this story is to pray the prayers of our community. Every week when we gather and celebrate the Holy Eucharist, there is a summary of God's story in the Eucharistic prayer. This is a way to steep ourselves in not only the tradition of our church, but in the good news of God. We can also do things like reflect on our day and ask ourselves at the end of each day, where did you meet God today? What is God doing in your life right now? <laughs> 
What is the good news of Jesus that has been given to you? We can talk about those things with loved ones or friends, or journal about them, or simply spend time in prayer with God. By listening for God's presence in our daily lives, we learn what the good news of God in Christ is for us. Once we know the story of God's love for us, the sweeping story in the scriptures, the story of God's love as it's been worked out in our lives, the next step, and really our obligation, is to share that story, to tell the good news. We want to do this because our hearts are gladdened and we want other people to know the joy. It's also worth noting that the scriptures command us to do this. Jesus told his followers to make disciples of all nations, so we'd better get busy. Now, sometimes people don't practice evangelism very well. The Episcopal Church is not known for doing this well, but we're changing that right now. One of the reasons that people don't practice evangelism sometimes is they talk about how other people have done it badly. Well, so-and-so was an evangelist and told people they were going to hell if they didn't believe in such and such a way. Well, just because there are bad drivers on the road doesn't mean that I stay out of my car. I just stay away from those bad drivers <laughs> and try to drive well. And so it is with evangelism. Just because there are people out there maybe not doing it very well doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it. It just means I should do it well and be particularly loving as we tell the good news. It's important to know that evangelism gets easier with practice. The more we practice telling our story, the easier it gets to tell our story. It's like anything else in life. Practice makes perfect. The more we do it, the better we get. So how do we do this? What are some ways to be evangelists, to be bearers of the good news? Well, one easy one is to invite somebody to come to church. You can say, oh, I heard you might be looking for a church. Why don't you come to my church with me? Or we have glorious music at my church. I think you'd like the music. Or the preacher this Sunday is going to be very good. Why don't you come hear the preacher? Or we have wonderful outreach ministries and we feed the hungry and serve the poor. Why don't you come join us in that work? There are lots of ways to invite people. Another way to practice evangelism is to be doing good work in the world. We talked about good works and why we do them. To be doing those good works and tell people why we do them. I'm serving food in this food ministry because I know that when I feed the hungry, I'm meeting Jesus Christ himself. I'm not going to laugh at that racist joke because as a Christian, I know that if I'm a racist person, I'm not respecting the dignity of the butt of that joke. Another good way to be an evangelist is to offer to pray for people or with people. Oh, I know you're going through a hard time. Can I say a prayer for you? And then make sure you do it. Or to offer, if you're feeling brave, to offer right then and there to pause and say a prayer with someone. Is it okay if we take a moment and pray about that? The good news no pun intended, <laughs> is that our job is not to convert people. What happens in people's hearts is the work of the Holy Spirit. My obligation as a Christian is to proclaim the good news of God in Jesus Christ, to be bearers of God's love for me and for others in the world. What happens after that is God's job. And so I hope you'll find a way to be an evangelist, a bearer of the good news.
for this episode of the Church Next Podcast. But before we go, a couple of resources to bring up for you. I got a couple of books for you. One is called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture. It's by Ellen Davis. Another, Serve God, Save the Planet by Matthew Sleet. Jesus the Savior, The Meaning of Jesus Christ for the Christian Faith by William Platcher. Jesus, A Very Short Introduction by Richard Bauckham. The Holy Spirit by Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. And Discerning Your Spiritual Gifts by Lloyd Edwards. And of course, if you want to know a little bit more about evangelism, David Gortner's excellent book called Transforming Evangelism is great. Practicing Our Faith by Dorothy Bass. And Evangelism for Normal People by John Bowen. And that's our podcast for the day. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, if you want to know more about us, you can pop over to churchnext.tv. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you and be with you this day and always. Amen.